Hello and welcome back to the Energy Flux podcast. Um, before anything else, I should just remind folks to uh, subscribe to the Energy Flux newsletter if you haven't done so already. Uh, head on over to www.energyflux.news and you can get lots of free email updates about upcoming shows and a whole load loads more besides. And today we are talking about missions of methane from the oil and gas sector. Uh, methane is an extremely potent climate warming gas with a warming potential of more than 80 times that of carbon dioxide. The oil and gas industry today is responsible for emitting more than 76 million tonnes of methane every year. To explain why this is the case and talk through the various global methane initiatives, I am delighted to be joined by Jonathan Banks, John Global Nonprofits, working to further solutions to the most pressing climate issues. Um, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Seb. It's nice to be here. Hopefully everyone can hear me. Uh, my name's Jonathan Banks. I'm the International Director for Methane at the Clean Air Task Force, which is a nonprofit organization working to reduce global warming emissions globally um, and to deal with some of the biggest energy issues around the world. Um, I focus specifically on trying to help countries come up with solutions to reduce their methane emissions. Uh, you've been measuring methane emissions in the field and uh, trying to detect methane leaks from uh, sites across the world. Perhaps you could talk around the scope of your work and the kind of um, uh, measurements or, or leak detection that you've, um, that, that you've been able to detect in the field. Sure. So we're, we have a, a team that works on trying to de detect methane emissions using uh, a type of technology known as optical gas imaging. Um, and it looks like it's a camera that looks a little like an old time VCR camera. If, if anyone's old enough to remember that I am. Um, but it uh, is a very specialized camera that allows us to see emissions of methane. And normally methane is completely invisible. Um, but through the use of this camera, we're able to see, you know, leaks and intentional releases of methane um, around the world. Most of our work today is um, uh, over the last, you know, really year and a half has really been focused on looking at Europe and trying to show the breadth of the emissions that are going on in Europe from the oil and gas sector. Um, and with the use of this camera, we're able to go um, survey sites rather quickly um, to see the emissions. Um, the reason we're doing this is because, well, because methane is invisible, it's largely been ignored by policymakers as well as industry. And by using the camera, we can show just how big of a problem it is and we can um, uh, put some pressure on policymakers to act, which is what we're really trying to get is um, governments around the world to wake up and take action to reduce methane emissions from the oil and gas sector. Okay. Um, uh, of, of course, this isn't a new problem. Um, 
And uh, as I said in my intro, 76 million tonnes per annum and rising. And this has been going on for, for really for decades now. Um, perhaps we can talk around the industry's really, frankly, very poor track record for tech tackling this decades-old problem. Um, it's, you know, methane's always talked as a low-hanging fruit, and it's still going picked after, unpicked after so many years, um, despite there being incentives stacking up in favour of being fixed. What's your view on on why why that's been allowed to happen? Are the incentives pointing in one direction, but progress going in reverse. It's a great question, Sev. Um, the 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 answer of why no one has really taken action in the past um, is a is a pretty complex question. But I'll give a few examples of of, of what's been happening um, up until relatively recently. Um, gas leaking from the system, or gas being vented, or gas being flared, all of that was just basically considered. Um, part of um, normal business operations. Um, there wasn't much in the way of attention being paid to how much was being leaked, how much was being vented. In many cases, companies were simply going for oil. They weren't after the natural gas. And so the natural gas was seen as a trash product, something to be gotten rid of. Um, so that was a big issue for a long time as to you know, why people were not really that focused on uh, dealing with this issue. Um, you know, as, as I said, said earlier, the fact that methane's invisible has also um, meant that a lot of people, even people who work for the companies, don't even know that this is happening. I've been on many sites with a camera crew and um, staff from the the site will come over to ask, hey, what are you doing? And we'll say, oh, we're, we're looking at all the methane emissions that are leaking out of your site. And they'll say, oh, there's no methane here. And then they'll come around and look through the camera and be a little flabbergasted by the fact that um, they're walking around in clouds of methane emissions leaking from sites they didn't even know were leaking. But the, the reasons that no one has taken uh, really advantage of these emission reductions are, are pretty bizarre sometimes. Um, when you look at companies, um, sometimes, actually most of the times, companies internally have um, a rate of return on investment. So internally to the company, if you want access to capital to do a new project, you have to pass a hurdle of a rate of return on investment internally to the company. And you compete with other teams within the company to see whether or not that you can access the capital of the company. The rate of a return on investment in a methane abatement project is good. It's profitable in most cases, but it's not as good as drilling a new well or maybe building uh, a new pipeline. Those kinds of things have a much higher rate of return on investment. So those are the ones that companies end up prioritizing. Um, so you have an issue within the companies. They just have never prioritized this, even though it is profitable. We've seen instances where executives within companies have decided to make it a priority to deal with these emissions. Um, and in those cases, those companies have made a tremendous amount of progress while those executives have been attentive to this issue. But in most cases, the attention within the company has not been such that it um, spills all the way down to the 
the crews that are working in the fields to make sure that methane emissions are being tackled. What we've found is the only way to really overcome those kinds of barriers and the host of other barriers that exist is through regulation, where you force companies to take care of business and deal with these methane emissions. Only then have we found that companies will actually do it. Um, the, the list of barriers that prevent companies from doing this is, is a really long one. There's some totally bizarre stories. Um, there's a case in, in, in Texas where uh, we were talking with a company and uh, the, we were trying to talk to them about why they weren't using the natural gas that was being flared at the site to power their equipment and their drilling rigs and things like that. Um, instead, they were using diesel and they were trucking in diesel to this site to, to use it. Um, and it turns out that the um, company that supplied the diesel was the brother-in-law of the drilling manager at that site. And he didn't want to put his brother-in-law out of business um, with, uh, with um, switching over to natural gas. So there's weird barriers like this throughout the system that block um, companies from taking advantage of this. And so what we found is there just has to be a requirement to take care of it and do it. Um, it helps as more and more of these technologies come online that allow us to see the methane emissions because it becomes less of something that you can kind of hide behind. Right now, um, most people who live near an oil and gas facility don't even know that it's emitting um, methane emissions. If you live next to a coal plant, you know darn well that that thing's emitting uh, emissions. You see the smoke coming out of the facility, but um, it, it, with oil and gas, it's not the case until recently when these technologies started coming online to allow us to visualize it. That's that's amazing. That that story of the the brother-in-law shipping in the diesel and <laughs> the venting huge amounts of methane. Incredible. Um, so that leads me on to my next question. I was going to ask you about regulation and you know carrots and sticks, and and this being such an old problem and such an entrenched problem. Are we beyond the point where we need like carrots and sticks, you know, to, there to be kind of positive incentives? Is it a case of you know, we just need, the regulators need to get tough, turn the screw, and then? you know, hopefully everybody will fall in line? Well, I think it depends really on um, the company you're dealing with and and where um, in the world that company is located. Um, if you are a company that is um, you know, based in Europe or um, United okay. States, can you hear me, Seb? Uh, yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Um, um, if you are a country in Europe, or a company in Europe, or a company in um, you know the United States or Canada, um, I think the answer um, is that uh, we just need strong regulation um, that is uh, enforced 
um, by regulators and drives constant improvement over time. Um, uh, a lot of times regulators want to um, try to tackle a problem once and then and then leave it alone for 10 or 15 years. This is one of those things that we need constant improvement of um, increasing uh, reductions in methane emissions to get us as close to zero as possible. In other parts of the world, I do think that um, there may be a role um, for for more of the carrot, as you say, um, as um, as national oil companies in in some parts of the world look to try to reduce their emissions and transition to um, a decarbonized economy. Um, there's likely to be a need for um, more creative solutions that aren't simply um, regulatory that look to utilize um, uh, innovative options uh, to incentivize reductions to to drive down emissions and to help those um, countries transition um, uh, their economies uh, to a decarbonized energy system. Um, so I think it really depends, you know, kind of on location. Um, but what we've found is there's many, many places around the world where what we really need is um, clear indicators from government that action needs to happen. Um, and that drives companies to pay a lot more attention to this. It drives innovation within the um, types of um, equipment that's being um, used to reduce emissions and detect emissions. Um, and all of the attention that we've seen for methane in the last few years has really driven this kind of growth. Uh, we're seeing tremendous growth in the types of technologies to reduce emissions as well as the types of technologies used to detect them. So this is, you know, we're just at the very beginning of the policy actions that are being taken place, that are taking place to address this issue. And and we're seeing this kind of innovation. I expect to see a lot more as more and more countries around the world seek to um, to drive down emissions. Okay, and and uh, there's there was of course a global push to 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 address this and and to uh, and to drive those innovations forwards. Um, and uh, and and the oil and gas industry, for for its part, is there making promises that now. Now they're going to take it seriously. Now they're going to invest serious amounts of money. Um, so we've seen the oil and gas climate initiative, the OGCI. It has an investment arm, OGCI Climate Investments, and they intend to invest, I think, a third of its $1 billion fund into methane solutions. Uh, is, is this enough? Is this going to dent the problem, do you think? And uh, you know, do we even know what it would take to eliminate you know, uh, 75, 80% of the oil industry's methane footprint. Well, the great thing about this issue is it, this isn't, this isn't something um, where we need a whole lot of inventions um, and innovations that's still going to happen. Um, and that's going to drive down the complexity of the issue. It's going to drive down the cost of dealing with the issue. But right now, today, the technology exists to reduce emissions by roughly 75%. Um, these are 
technologies and practices that are used commercially um, in in uh, in many parts of the of the oil and gas industry. Um, I always describe them as um, this is plumbing, not rocket science, um, because you're not really talking about creating some, you know, insanely innovative solution. You're talking about basic maintenance, good practices, and going and looking for leaks and, um, and emissions on a regular basis and fixing them. Um, another major aspect of emissions is proper planning. Um, companies will often go in and drill a well um, without any um, real plan for how they're going to get gas from the well to a pipeline. Um, this happens you know, all over the world, especially with an oil well where they drill an oil well and they don't have any desire to deal with the gas. So the gas ends up being vented or flared. Um, proper planning on how these guys are going to develop their, um, their infrastructure can go a long ways also. None of this stuff requires a tremendous amount of innovation. This is stuff that everyone can do today. And, um, and there's been countless studies that have shown we can get roughly 75% emissions reduction um, with what we have today. As technologies develop, um, it's the hope that that will go even lower, that we'll be able to get um, uh, emission reductions uh, much greater than a 75% reduction. Okay, and are you optimistic that that will actually happen? Because bearing in mind the reasons you cited earlier about uh, there not being the right incentive and the, the return on investment being below that of just kind of drilling more wells or putting in new pipelines, um, you know, w will we see these these pledges delivered upon this time? I think we will. Um, the attention to methane um, has you know, really you know, grown tremendously. Um, the, the issue of methane and climate first emerged um, back in like 2002. Um, and yeah, it's 20 years later, but it's taken quite some time for everyone to understand, you know, the magnitude of the problem and the opportunity that methane presents to start to bend the curve on climate change. And it wasn't until 2021 uh, when we had a series of studies that came out at, in the um, spring of 2021, we had what was known as uh, the Global Methane Assessment by the United Nations Environment Program and the Climate and Clean Air Coalition. Um, and that study, what it did was it looked at um, the amount of reductions um, that could uh, be achieved and should be achieved to put ourselves on a one and a half degree pathway. Um, and then we also had, um, later on in the year, we had the UNFCCC's um, annual study, um, AR6, which is the kind of annual look at climate. And for the first time, they had a concerted focus on methane and its impact to climate. Um, and what we saw from that was just how um, massive an impact methane has been having on uh, the temperature that we're feeling roughly half a, half a degree of um, the one degree of warming that we've um, experienced to date comes from methane emissions. And so these things have started to give um, uh, countries around the world and companies around the world 
the focus to really dig in and address these issues, um, something that hasn't existed before. So, you know, of all the climate issues um, that we're all dealing with, um, this is one that gives me honestly the most hope and keeps me getting up every day to, to go to work. I really believe that um, the opportunity exists here to to get a real win on climate change, one that you and I will be able to see um, with our with our own eyes. Um, if we can get, you know, roughly a 45 percent reduction in total methane, not just from the oil and gas sector, but if we can get roughly a 45 percent uh, reduction in total methane between now and in 2030, we can knock off basically 0.3 degrees Celsius from the temperature change that we're expecting um, in just two decades. So that's kind of the kind of change that people can get excited about. Climate change has a tendency to be something that's so far off in advance in the, in the future that people have a hard time focusing on it. Um, but this is something that is um, that allows us to see a clear win and progress, um, something that human beings desperately need to be able to see is that progress in meeting our goals uh, for climate change. So I am fairly optimistic that we can do this. It's going to take a tremendous amount of effort by companies, by governments, and by civil society uh, to, to really drive this action and change. Um, but I, I feel like um, that has begun to materialize we have you know, um, a, a tremendous amount of progress moving in that direction. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about the Global Methane Pledge here in a little while. So I'll, I'll stop and let you ask some other questions. You, you could have just carried on. That is my exact <laughs> next question. The Global Methane Pledge, it's um, uh, it launched at COP26 and it had some quite interesting signatories. Perhaps you could talk around that. Um, who signed up and um, which of those signatories are you getting most excited about in terms of their perhaps innovative approach to dealing with this problem? Yeah, so 100 and, I think it's 111 right now. Um, I'd have to go check, but I think it's 111 um, countries signed on to the Global Methane Pledge at, at COP. And um, this was something, the, the pledge came out of a recognition that um, we really needed high level political commitments to reducing methane emissions. Um, uh, back in back in 2016, there was kind of an early predecessor to the Global Methane Pledge um, that happened in North America with Canada, the United States and Mexico. Um, joining together on what was known as the North American Leaders Summit um, that targeted methane emissions. When the uh, two presidents and the prime minister um, signed that document, um, it spawned a regulatory process in all three countries that really surpassed anyone's um, uh, expectations. Uh, I was working on a small project in, in Mexico at the time on methane emissions, and as soon as the president of Mexico signed that pledge, the um, regulatory agency went from um, a slow pace to a very, very rapid pace of, of trying to develop policies to reduce methane. And so the Global Methane Pledge comes from that ancestry of, of recognizing that when you have high level political commitments 
it frees up the regulators and the policymakers in the country to take action. When the president says we're going to do something on climate, then the regulatory bodies within uh, that country are liberated to start to develop policies to look at what they can do and achieve. Um, so the, you know, the, we had a lot of really great um, countries signing on, you know, very big um, methane emitters um, uh, signing on, um, some uh, large oil and gas methane emitters, you know, Canada, the U.S. being two of the obvious. Nigeria was also uh, part of uh, the Global Methane Pledge. Um, you had almost all of South America sign on to the Global Methane Pledge. Um, a, a whole lot of countries in Africa, um, Europe and the UK, um, all joining. Um, so there was a tremendous amount of support for the Global Methane Pledge. There's obviously gaps in that support, um, Russia and China being the two largest um, uh, emitters that um, are not on uh, the Global Methane Pledge yet, um, but I, I still have hope that um, both those nations will, will join at some point uh, soon. Uh, in fact, um, at the COP, uh, there was a bilateral agreement between the United States and China that also contained um, um, commitments to reduce methane emissions, so that was a good um, early sign there. And also, Russia has made lots of noise recently about trying to reduce methane emissions um, itself at a climate conference um, held last year, last spring, that uh, President Biden hosted. Uh, President Putin um, and, uh, was talking about um, getting a 50% reduction in methane emissions. Um, and so there's been a lot of um, action and movement um, and talk from even uh, Russia and China on this issue. And I think as the, the pressure mounts for, from uh, the world to take action, I think uh, I'm hopeful that they will eventually join on to the Global Methane Pledge uh, with all the other countries that are, that are participating. Great. Um, yeah, yeah well, let's, just, let's just dwell on that for a moment because there are quite a lot of countries missing. Um, I mean, I just did a kind of quick cross-reference. and So you mentioned Russia and China, India, Australia, Qatar, Turkmenistan, Iran, Bolivia, Algeria, and Egypt, Egypt um, are all quite conspicuously absent. And uh, these are all countries with massive gas profiles, and, uh, and so they have a, um, you know, a, a, quite a big methane uh, footprint to go with that. Why, why do you think that so many countries didn't sign on in the first instance? W what are they holding out for, and, and what, can it, what can be done to cajole them into sort of signing up to such an obviously beneficial agreement? Well, I think in part the, uh, the methane issue in, in many parts of the world is a relatively new issue. Um, and so there's often a bit of capacity building that has to go into um, the conversation before you can talk about um, methane emissions reductions. Um, one of the very first things when, and I, I work with countries around the world on this, but one of the very first things that any country says to me when we're starting to have discussions about methane mitigation policies is, we don't know how much we emit, so how can we commit to any sort of methane emission reductions? And that's a fair question. Um, and so, you know, we, but there's, there are ways to um, 
to build understanding and capacity um, in, in, in government ministries and agencies that deal with these issues. Um, but those sometimes take time. So when you look at the countries that are missing from the list, sometimes it's, it's not so much that they've said, heck no, we're not doing this, and more so that we don't really know enough about this issue right now to be able to commit. And so there's a bit of reticence um, when it comes to that. Um, the other um, issue that comes into play with the Global Methane Pledge is it's not just about oil and gas. It's about reducing methane emissions from all other sectors as well. And so there's often a need for a conversation, not just with the energy ministry in a country, but with the agricultural ministry and um, local governments that deal with waste issues and things like that. So it's a, you know, it is a, it's an issue that requires quite a bit of funding um, to get countries to a point where they are comfortable and committed to taking action. Um, the pledge um, materialized rather quickly um, and there was a tremendous amount of diplomatic work that went on both from countries as well as from civil society groups to um, try to get as many countries on as possible. To be honest, it far surpassed anything that I expected to see. Um, getting 111 countries on this thing um, was was way beyond what I thought we would get. Um, so I was really excited to see that. Um, but it doesn't mean that that's where this stops. Um, we have, um, believe it or not, another COP coming up uh, not too long from now uh, in Egypt. Um, and then the next COP after that is in uh, United Arab Emirates. Um, and I think uh, because of the emissions profiles of both of those countries, and um, uh, there's a unique opportunity to um, focus on uh, methane emissions, especially in the oil and gas sector, um, and, and continue to raise the profile of this issue and to start to put some meat on the bones of um, of the Global Methane Pledge as to what this means um, for countries. Because as you know, the pledge was really just this high level commitment without a whole lot of detail down below it. Um, and that's what's being worked on right now is developing out, you know, what is it that countries need to do um, to begin to tackle this. Um, along with the pledge comes a host of technical assistance and financial assistance to help countries navigate this issue and find solutions. And there's a host of experts that are um, being deployed already to help countries uh, develop policies and understand the barriers that they face so that they can start to take action. Um, but um, I'm, I'm still hopeful that we're gonna see a lot more uh, of these countries signing on. Um, but at the same time, we also need to see action from the countries that have already signed on to this. Um, there are many countries um, that, um, that signed on that were big promoters of this at the COP that um, need to um, you know, sit down and, and start to take action themselves. Um, we need to see real progress prior to the next COP of many of these countries developing policies and putting them in, in place 
to start tackling methane emissions. This can't simply be a big press release that says, oh, all these people committed to doing something and no one ever does it. That kind of um, nullifies the point of addressing methane emissions in the near term. Uh, yeah, it would be extremely damaging because the, the hope has been raised that the pledge will be translated into action. Um, but one of the criticisms, of course, was that it's just a pledge and it's not the global methane obligation. Um, is it unrealistic to expect there to be an obligation at any point? Because I suppose every country is sovereign, so they have to determine their own obligations upon their own domestic industries. Yeah, I mean, every, there's lots of talk. Um, everybody, a lot of people were um, going, oh, it, we need we need this to be, you know, a legally binding agreement. Um, and, you know, that would be that would be wonderful if there was a legally binding agreement to reduce methane emissions. Um, but I don't see it as um, uh, an absolute critical necessity. Um, I think there's a lot more that can be done around the global methane pledge to um, to put um, real details of what these countries, what each country is committing to. And I think there um, may be an opportunity down um, down the road to have something that is more binding, but it's I don't think it's necessary. Um, we've seen um, uh, many times um, you know, uh, pledges like this that have led to to real action. Um, and at the end of the day, if you have a legally binding you know agreement, it still has to be implemented by the country. Um, and it still has to, um, if you're going to get emission reductions, you have to have implementing policy at the national level. And we're already doing implementing policy on methane mitigation at the national level. Um, just last week, Colombia um, finalized regulations to cut methane emissions from the oil and gas sector. Um, and um, Nigeria is close to finalizing policies to um, to regulate methane emissions. We have the European Union, which has legislation um, that's been sent over to uh, the parliament uh, to um, uh, begin tackling methane emissions from the energy sector. Um, we have regulations that have been proposed um, in the United States to go even further on reducing methane emissions in the oil and gas sector. Canada is starting a process to cut methane emissions in oil and gas by 75%. Um, so there's a lot of action that is already taking place. And the Global Methane Pledge is fueling that action uh, to, a, to a much greater degree. Um, so, you know, binding would be fantastic. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's necessary. Um, uh, I, what's necessary is that we have implementing legislation and regulations at the national level that, uh, that really starts to reduce methane emissions. We can have other policies layered on uh, to those as well. Um, there's, there's all sorts of attention to developing policies that would, um, uh, you know, bilateral agreements around um, reducing emissions. Um, there's, there's negotiations about um, uh, um, reducing uh, emissions of globally traded gas. Um, so there's all sorts of things that can be layered on to get the end result that we all want. Right. Um, I guess at some point that there, there has to be some teeth, though. Yeah, I mean, I think 
um, I think that the, I think that, well, first of all, the regulations at a country level has have to have teeth. Um, they have to be, you know, um, actionable regulations to, to cut methane emissions. Um, but I think when you look at, um, you know, countries that haven't joined um, or large emitting um, countries, um, that those those positions will become increasingly untenable. Um, the where the technology is going as to uh, the development of our ability to see methane emissions on a global basis um, is is going you know with with we're going to have in in a year and a half we're going to have the first satellites up um, uh, that are going to be specifically targeting methane emissions. We already have some satellites that can see methane emissions, but um, in a year and a half we're going to have an, the launch of the first new satellites that really target methane on a on a global basis in a in a regular basis. Um, we've got new technologies such as aerial surveys and drones and and such that are all starting to show the breadth of the problem. And so, you know, the countries that are lagging behind um, in in progress um, are no longer really going to be in a position of um, being able to say, oh, we don't have emissions. Um, it's That's not going to be the case anymore. We're going to be able to say to those countries, you have emissions, you have a lot of emissions, and this is where it's coming from. These are the problems. How can we work together to to fix those? So I, I think that um, you know uh, you know the ability to you know kind of sit this one out um, is is going to disappear rather quickly, um, and the pressure is going to um, be increasing on countries that have not joined up and who are not taking action um, to do both. That's great. That's fantastic. Um, so you touched upon a couple of jurisdictions that I wanted to ask you about. One is the European Union, of course, the methane strategy, which you mentioned, um, and, and Colombia, which you mentioned has uh, finalised its new flaring and methane emissions regulations. Um, just on the EU, the methane strategy, uh, you know, the EU is a massive energy importer and, and the, the methane regulations that they're proposing aren't yet extended to cover those imports and of course that's where the big kind of emissions gains are to be made um can you just kind of talk around that is that something that you expect to be addressed going forwards when it goes through the 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 back to the eu parliament and it goes to the council um and and if so like how how long do you think it might be realistically until we see binding methane emissions uh, reduction reductions regulations on eu imports um, and, and then also Colombia, of course, um, how, what have they done and how did they get there? And, and is this a kind of uh, uh, an interesting example that other jurisdictions could, could, could follow? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so the EU um, legislation um, that um, the European Commission has sent over to Parliament, um, it, it contains um, some really good stuff in, um, in reducing domestic emissions um, we have a, a few quibbles with it um, that um, we'll be um, talking about with members of the European Parliament um, to, to identify some gaps in the legislation. Uh, but in general, the legislation is, is quite good on reducing domestic emissions. But as you um, rightly point out, 
the big game here is um, on imported and um, uh, on imported gas and oil. Um, Europe is the largest uh, purchaser of um, both oil and gas. Um, they, um, you know, they reach out to um, a tremendous number of countries around the world. Um, uh, they basically touch on about 50% of globally traded gas. Um, their biggest, um, uh, um, their um, biggest exporters to Europe are uh, Russia, Algeria, Qatar, and Norway. Um, and so there's an opportunity here, and this has been raised throughout the process of developing the legislation and all of the, the, um, the, the back and forth that's going on around it. There's an opportunity here to use the, um, the power of uh, Europe's purchasing uh, power to, to reduce emissions, to extend better practices to other parts of the world. And I think that's um, a, a goal that that everyone who's in, involved in this um, pretty much um, holds uh, closely. Um, the legislation that um, the commission sent over to Parliament, though, um, really focuses more on transparency around the emissions. So um, showing um, even for imports how much uh, methane emissions is associated with imported gas. Um, which is a good start, but it is not anywhere near what is needed. Um, thankfully, the European Parliament, um, in its original response to the European Commission's um, methane strategy, um, highlighted the need to um, truly address methane emissions from imported oil and gas. Um, so it, it's my expectation that the European Parliament will really be digging into this to, to begin addressing uh, the imports issue. Um, and, um, you know, it is, um, it's, you know, the timeline for this is, um, you know, the, the, the uh, Parliament and the Council will probably be looking at this um, most of this year. It'll most likely spill into next year before we might see this um, final decisions by Parliament and Council. Um, but it's my expectation that hopefully in the first quarter of 2023, we, we would have some final decisions um, from uh, from Europe on on this issue. Um, but the timelines can can uh, be delayed. Uh, but right now, that's that's our expectation. Uh, but we're, you know, fully expecting the issue of imports to be a major, major um, point of discussion and debate. Um, but we think that there's um, a, a real opportunity here to um, to, be, to leverage Europe's purchasing power to drive down emission reductions on a global scale. Um, moving on to Colombia, um, Colombia, Colombia has been. Um, a very active um, participant in a number of different forums around the world, um, global forums around the world that um, have um, been elevating um, understanding of emission sources and solutions and piloting a variety of, um, of, of solutions for many years. Um, they've been an active participant of 
um, the Global Methane Initiative. They've been uh, active participants in the Climate and Clean Air Coalition. Both uh, institutions are um, uh, really focused on uh, reducing methane emissions, um, not just from the oil and gas sector, but from other sectors as well. And Colombia has been really active in this space. So you had a really, um, you had you had a bit more of a built up um, capacity in the country on this issue. Um, starting back in about 2018, the um, energy ministry in Colombia started um, exploring um, pathways to reducing methane emissions in the oil and gas sector. Um, there was uh, a series of workshops and and, um, and and research pieces that were put together to delve into um, what they currently knew about emissions, um, what could be done about them, the um, a, a scan of the best practices and regulations from around the world uh, to, to look at what they could learn from those. Um, there were workshops that brought in, you know, regulators from other parts of the world who'd already been addressing these issues. Um, and so there was a host of capacity building that eventually led to the development of um, methane regulations. Um, you know, there was also um, a lot of work that was done on trying to better understand emissions in, in Colombia, you know, working through the inventory that they had and looking for ways to uh, better improve that inventory. Um, and all of this was collaboratively done with both civil society as well as um, the National Oil Company uh, in Colombia and some of the other companies that are active in Colombia. Uh, to kind of bring everybody um, uh, together. Um, the final um, product that came out of uh, the ministry um, uh, last week um, combines both um, flaring emission reduction uh, regulations with um, methane emission reduction regulations, which is which is fantastic because a lot of times uh, countries will only try to focus on um, one or the other. They'll say, all right, we're going to do flaring policy today and tomorrow we're going to do methane policy. But the two are completely and totally integrated and dependent on each other. Um, you, the last thing you would want to do is stop flaring and start venting methane. Um, so you need policies um, between the two of them that work together. Um, the the product that Columbia has put out is um, it has some really good stuff in it. We're really excited to see uh, a number of the different uh, programs that they've put in place. Um, the, um, you know, there were some things that we would like to see improve, but I think as um, the regulator in Colombia starts to implement this, as the companies start to get experience, I think there will be an opportunity relatively soon to strengthen those regulations as well. Um, but I think um, in general, um, it's a great um, first step on, on tackling this issue and shows their continued um, interest and leadership in, in this and becoming the first country in South America to tackle methane emissions from the oil and gas sector. Yeah, I, I was on mute back there, but I laughed out loud when you said the last thing you want to do is to stop flaring <laughs> and start venting methane. But I mean, You'd be surprised how, 
You'd be surprised. <laughs> well, that, that's why I laughed, because that's the kind of behavior that we've seen too, too often in the oil and gas patch, is that you know, if, you. if there is a regulatory avenue to exploit, then they will do it. And regardless of the, the kind of reputational consequences, like, well, it's just cheaper to do this, and so we'll do it, and it doesn't matter. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story from, um, from Italy. Uh, we, um, uh, we were out, um, with our camera team looking at, uh, emissions and, um, one of the first sites we turned the camera on, uh, when we got to Italy, uh, was an LNG terminal. Um, and I was telling the camera tech, it was like, I don't think we're going to see much here because this is, you know, it's an LNG terminal. The gas is the product. They're paying, you know, $70 million for every tanker that comes in here. They're not going to be venting this product to the atmosphere. Sure enough, they were. Um, and, but it was, it was something that was so curious to me that uh, we reached out to the company to, to talk to them. And um, I said, well, I, I said, why, why are you venting? And, you know, there was a equipment malfunction that led to, you know, uh, um, venting of emissions and, you know, they were aware of it and they had it scheduled for, for repair and scheduled a little too far out from, for my taste. Um, but then I asked them, well, I said, this is, this is a lot of emissions. Why aren't you flaring it? And they said, oh, there's a local ordinance that says we can't flare. <laughs> so it was, it was exactly what you're talking about. Unbelievable. Like the last thing we want is that. <laughs> so um, that's another, another reason why you need um, in, in Europe, even why you need a, a concerted effort to tackle um, all of this that can supersede some of these um, uh, things that have been leading to emission sources. Yeah, absolutely. Like no place to hide, I think would be a good a good phrase because if there's somewhere, absolutely. if there's like a dark corner, then it kind of it just shifts in there. There's some like this kind of gravitational thing where behavior just moves towards the path of least resistance. So, yeah, yeah, no, you're ca absolutely right. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, Jonathan. Uh, perhaps just one very brief final question. You you did do some some work in the field in the UK. Um, looking at uh, venting that was going on in the the national grid network, um, how uh, how surprised were you by the number of leaks you found, and uh, what was the kind of reception that you got when you when you presented these findings, perhaps to the companies involved or to the regulator? Great question. Um, so I think, I mean, in we do a lot of research uh, before uh, the team goes in to to look at um, sources and. Um, and, uh, you know, honestly, I wasn't expecting um, what we ended up seeing. Um, uh, we saw a, a number of emissions, um, large emission sources um, at, at a variety of sites on, um, throughout the UK. Um, some, some really um, bizarre ones um, uh, where, you know, there was, there was some, uh, some old oil wells that are barely producing any oil. Um, but there's no pipelines for the gas that also comes up with the oil because you, you probably know this, but when you drill for oil, you often find gas. Even in, in, in old oil wells, there's elements of natural gas that are coming up with the oil. Um, but these sites never had um, gas pipelines to collect the gas. And, and so the gas is simply vented. Um, and, um, and all of this, everything that we saw is basically permitted. Um, it's allowed for under UK law. 
Um, and, you know, the, the conversations that we've had with um, um, the, uh, the companies have been, um, you know, uh, we had a really good conversation with one of the companies with their, uh, their, their team who's, who's supposed to address these issues. And, and they were, you know, once they got uh, over the fact that, you know, we pointed this out in the media, they were actually quite excited about, um, about this, about the opportunity to use this newfound attention to really begin tackling the issue uh, in their system. Um, it, from the regulator perspective, I think one of the biggest problems in the UK uh, from th that side is that you have, you know, five, six, I'd have to count them up again, maybe even seven uh, different entities that have some role in um, addressing methane emissions in the oil and gas sector. Um, you have divisions between offshore and onshore. You have permits uh, divisions. You have environmental divisions. You have um, a host of other um, entities that have some role to play in this. And there's going to need to be um, a concerted effort by the government to coordinate all of those entities into one effort to address methane emissions because you can't simply go and develop policies in all of those different places to try to do this. It needs to be something that brings together all of the aspects of the UK government that have an issue uh, to address here um, so that you can have one unique policy uh, to really uh, begin leveraging emission reductions. But that policy um, does not exist. Um, the the, the um, standards that are um, that exist in the UK um, are are very much behind the times of where um, methane mitigation policy is, and um, it is something that um, we're hoping um, the government will um, seek to rectify. Um, earlier, I talked about the need to see progress going into the next COP. I would say the UK is one of those places, um, despite it not being one of the greatest emitters of methane emissions, it's definitely one of those places politically that we have to see action happening. Uh, we have to see movement before the next COP that um, the UK is going to um, begin addressing this. Um, but it needs to be really a cross-government um, effort to bring together all of those agencies Otherwise, it's going to be um, quite a pain to uh, to try to navigate um, each one of those individually. Yeah, having written extensively and covered um, UK energy policy um, and done some Westminster Beat reporting, I can categorically affirm that the government <laughs> works in silos. <laughs> and um, it's, it's incredible. Like, even within departments, sometimes you can't get teams to talk to each other. So I understand what you're talking about there. Um, I'm, I'm seeing signs that that's starting to change, so that's really exciting too. Fantastic, fantastic. That's great. Jonathan, it's been uh, a real revelation, and um, we've gone way over time, but um, that's because there's so much to say, and so thank you for, for, for taking the time and sharing all of your expertise. And uh, maybe we can revisit this at some point in the future and talk about all the amazing progress that's been made um, on, on the topic of methane. Thanks again. My pleasure, and thank you for, for your interest in this issue and, and, and bringing all these issues out. That's it's really great. Brilliant. Okay, and uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, tune in this time next week for the next edition of the Energy Flux podcast. Many thanks.